Several people have asked me to summarize the differences between Judaism and Christianity. I'm going to go into this in much more detail and much more philosophically uh, at TJS next summer when I'm going to deliver some lectures on the Judeo-Christian tradition philosophically analyzed. But I just want to list a few uh, differences uh, between the two. The Jew seeks the meaning of life and being identified with a people. Uh, even God is defined in terms of being the God of that people. This is the only redemption a Jew knows to be redeemed from anonymity, from assimilation, from absorption uh, in the whole mass of the other peoples of the earth, the Goyim, as, as he calls them, G-O-Y-I-M. The major concern of the traditional Christian is individual salvation. Uh, he wants to find the ejector button out of this world. Uh, he seeks present relief from guilt, uh, and he seeks future immortality. But it's important to realize there is some element of tribalism also in Christianity, and that's in the concept of the church, uh, which is much stronger among Catholics and among Eastern Orthodox than it is among Protestants. Now, it was the genius of Paul. By the way, when I say Paul, I'm talking about the same guy that I referred to as Saul. Paul was his, uh, his alternate name as a uh, Roman citizen. It was the genius of Paul to have brought together the individual salvation element and the tribal identification element so that Paul conceived of the new Christian church as the new Israel. And that's why the Christian church is so emphatic that it is the new Israel because it wants to carry over a certain amount of the tribal element uh, from Judaism. Well, that's one difference. The Jew has a horizontal identification with the people to which he belongs, and God is basically the God of that people. The Christian has a vertical uh, identification. He's looking up, hoping for ejection if the button works, uh, and he can go to heaven. Uh, uh, what shall it, pro it profit a man, said Jesus, if he... Uh, gain the whole world and lose his soul. Now, another, another difference is that Christianity has revived certain special primitive ideas which Judaism had long abandoned, uh, like elaborate initiation rites, eating the sacrifice, uh, eating the body, drinking the blood, and so on. And then in Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy, again, which together form three-quarters of all Christians, you have the veneration of the Virgin Mary, a female supernatural being. Uh, for a third point, let's look at the ethics. The Jew is primarily concerned with observance of the commandments. He wants to see the commandments observed and plain, simple justice done. Uh, external observance is primary. The Christian, on the other hand, feels 
guilty if he even wishes to break a commandment. See, the Jew says, oh, I can wish, can't I? Uh, 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 but uh, they, uh, a Christian uh, following the Sermon on the Mount feels this, this uh, interior guilt. The result is the Jew expects the law to be fulfilled. He expects you to be just to him, and he ex expects to be required to be just. The Christian, on the other hand, ups the ante. He demands complete purity of heart. He, he, his command is to love everybody, but don't even have a wet dream. Uh, 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 and he, he, then his next, his next step, his next step is God can't be serious, you see. Uh, uh, and so uh, he says he he hopes for mercy, uh, total unearned uh, uh, forgiveness. But then, on the other hand, since the Jew. Uh, is expected to observe the law, he's left with a greater burden of guilt when he doesn't uh, observe it. And therefore, he's always carrying around in himself guilt for not having lived up to some uh, realizable ideal. Well, now this morning, uh, we're going to do two things. I'm going, to, uh, they're marked A at the top of the page and B at the bottom of the page, and I'm going to deal with Islam uh, and uh, talk about some general conclusions on the role of religion in human history, summarizing the remarks that I have uh, made through the whole series of lectures. Uh, Islam is an Arabic religion. Uh, the Arabs were a Semitic people who had become relatively isolated from other Semitic people, a larger proportion of them had remained nomads than was the case with other Semites. And yet there were many inhabitants of Arabia who lived a settled and urban life in the south and around India, uh, around uh, uh, Mecca. Still, in the, among the urban Arabs, the influence of the old desert life was very great. And you had the same conflict that you had in, in Judaism. A good part of the values were old tribal desert values, and these conflicted with town living. Islam, in part, sought to bring about a revival of these desert values. But we cannot say simply that Islam is a religion of the desert any more than we can say that of Judaism. To understand either of them, we must see the clash between desert values and urban values. Now, the nomad of the desert is not a natural monotheist. He's a worshiper of stone pillars, trees, groves, sacred bushes. Uh, he propitiates serpents and hyenas. Uh, he's an animist. In the time of Muhammad, the nomads were basically 
polytheistic in their attitude. Yet there was a contrary factor. Uh, the presence of wandering hermits with a monotheistic tendency. These were called Hanifs, desert hermits who were monotheists uh, and who claimed to worship the God of Abraham, uh, even though they were not Jewish. Mecca was famous for more than being a trade center. It was an, an important trade center on the way from India uh, to the Mediterranean basin, but it was famous for more than that. It was famous for its great shrine, the Kaaba. The Kaaba, that's the central shrine in Mecca. In prehistoric times, a great black meteorite had fallen on the location of Mecca. And when people moved in and founded a town there, they built a shrine around the meteorite. There you have the connection between extraterrestrial uh, events and religion very uh, concretely uh, brought out. They were stone worshippers, and it was natural for them to do this. They put the meteorite in a big box, the meteorite being exposed in the southeast corner. The box had inside it the idols of three goddesses, three goddesses. One Meccan tribe was made the guardian of this shrine, and there was an annual all-Arabian pil pilgrimage, uh, which was a great festival and which brought in a lot of money for the people who ran Mecca. Uh, you see, so the annual pilgrimage was an important thing. This pilgrimage to Mecca, therefore, was an institution that preceded Muhammad. Now let's look at the early career of Muhammad. He was born in Mecca in 570 of a poor family of the tribe that was the guardian of the Kaaba. He was orphaned at an early age, and he was sent out uh, with a nurse to live with a nomadic tribe in the desert. So he knew both the desert and the, uh, uh, the desert values and the values of the city. And it was a bustling town, values of Mecca. Uh, and he felt very keenly being an orphan. He was deprived of his inheritance, as a matter of fact. And this is a very important fact in Islam, the high valuation on taking care of orphans. Uh, he was taken, finally taken under the care of the head of his clan, and he began to go on trade journeys, camel journeys to Syria. At the age of 25, he was in charge of the merchandise of a wealthy widow of 40 named Khadija. And she thought that Muhammad was rather interesting. Uh, and uh, she married him. She later bore him six children, two boys and four girls. Uh, this marriage was the turning point of Muhammad's life. Had it not been for Khadija, there might have been no Islamic civilization. She got him on, she set him on the, on the road uh, and uh, saw to it he remained on it. He obtained sufficient capital to invest in mercantile activities, 
and became well known as a businessman of ability. At this time, Mecca itself was becoming more and more urban. The old tribal values were breaking down. Individual merchants more and more pursued their own individual interests, disregarding the ancient tribal injunctions that they were to share their wealth with the poor and the unfortunate and especially with the orphans. Uh, Muhammad had lived under both tribal and urban conditions, and he was torn between the two sets of values. At about the age 40, he suffered the loss of both his sons, and he went into a kind of mental depression and uh, began to look disheveled and to spend more and more time, guess where? Out in the desert, yes. His friends joked that our Muhammad is becoming a Hanif. Uh, one night while he was out on the desert, he had a vision of a majestic being who said to him, you are the messenger of Allah, Rasul Allah. You are the messenger of Allah. Allah being the same being, that the same high God I mentioned as uh, bearing the epithet Elohim. Uh, in uh, the Hebraic uh, tradition, or I, I use the word El. Uh, Muhammad rushed home and told his wife that he thought he was going crazy. Uh, and she said, you're not going crazy, Muhammad. Uh, buck up. Uh, 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 just have a little more self-confidence. Maybe you are the messenger of Allah. Uh, <laughs> She took him to her Christian cousin who listened to the verses, and the Christian cousin said, this sounds like the law of Moses to me. Uh, you are a prophet. You are a nabi. That's the word for prophet. Um, from now on, at frequent intervals, he would go into seizures during which he sweated profusely, uh, and he received revelations. With the help of his Christian relative, he came to interpret these messages as in general identical with those given to Jews and Christians. Soon he gathered around himself a group of followers who joined him in worship, worship that culminated in an act of prostration toward Jerusalem, an act of prostration toward Jerusalem. They touched their heads to the ground in acknowledgement of the majesty of Allah, uh, in about the year 613, he began to preach publicly. Now, the people of Mecca in general took religion very lightly. Although they worshipped a number of gods and idols, they depended on rational planning for the conduct of their lives. They ardently pursued wealth and the enjoyment of life. They did worship Allah as a kind of high god but regarded him as distant and of no more than honorary status, nothing like the important goddesses that they had inside the Kaaba. They were perhaps willing to go so far as to say, in Allah we trust, but they didn't take him very seriously. The earliest revelations of Muhammad call on the people of Mecca to acknowledge that their prosperity is due to Allah. This is a very important concept. Their prosperity is due to Allah and not to themselves. 
Gratitude to Allah for prosperity should be expressed by sharing one's wealth with the poor. These points are driven home with a threat. Everyone will appear before Allah on the last day to be judged for his deeds. In all this, we can see the same phenomenon that we saw in the case of the Hebrew prophets, John the Baptist and Jesus. A man of the town goes out in the desert and receives revelations which he is commanded to preach. Repent, repent, turn from your evil deeds and do good deeds. God will punish or reward you according to the choice that you make. Now, to make statements like this implies that your hearers already agree with you to some extent, that to some extent they share your values. I mean, if, you send, if somebody appears among, uh, wandering among the igloos of the Eskimos and says, repent, repent, uh, uh, they're not likely to know what he's talking about, you see. Muhammad had gathered around him about 70 young men before opposition began. These young men were of the wealthy class, and most of them were people who uh, were second and third sons and who were not going to get into their inheritance. There was implicit in Muhammad's uh, preaching a critique of the conduct and values of the rich merchants of Mecca. Muhammad's revelations constantly denounce uh, the mistreatment of orphans. He was an orphan himself and not by law allowed to inherit his father's wealth since he was a minor when his father died. Now the rich merchants of Mecca began to get worried at this preaching. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, they tried to soften his criticisms by giving him a fuller share of trade uh, and uh, a further marriage alliance with one of the wealthiest families. Muhammad refused. Economic pressure was brought to bear on his followers. His doctrine of the resurrection of the body was questioned. His monotheism, his condemnation of idolatry, was probably also feared. Why would his monotheism be feared? What did they have to lose there commercially? The Kaaba, yes, yes, with the goddesses uh, inside. Uh, how is uh, monotheism going to be fitted into the Kaaba? Well, Muhammad was so diplomatic, he fitted it in in such a way that whenever we think of the Kaaba today, we think of extreme monotheism. Several goddesses were venerated by the use of idols inside the Kaaba, and religious pilgrimages to the Kaaba were a main source of revenue. He was accused of planning to become politically supreme in Mecca. In 619, his wife died, and his own plan withdrew their protection from him. A petty persecution began. Uh, by petty persecution, I mean that the other uh, Meccans began to deposit pots of excrement outside his door. Uh, this was their first... Uh, 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 opinion that they had of Islam in Mecca. Things have changed since then. Uh, then in September 622, Muhammad fled to another city called Medina. And this flight to Medina is called the Hijrah. 
sometimes called Hajira. Now, from this uh, flight, the whole Mohammedan, the whole Muslim, Muslim is the proper word to use, not Mohammedan, the whole Muslim calendar is dated. This was the year one of Islam. The first day of the year in which this took place, July the 16th, 622, was the beginning of Islam. On arriving at Medina, the city to the north, he made an agreement with the eight Arab clans there in which they acknowledged him as the prophet. See, they heard he was doing a job down in Mecca and trying to preach no more tribal warfare. And they had a lot of tribal warfare up there, so they brought him up as mediator. They agreed to refer serious disputes to him. But the Jewish clans refused to recognize him as a prophet. But they got in on the deal by associate membership with the Arab clans. Muhammad's power was limited to the judicial, but he did promulgate several revelations giving legal rules to the Medinans. In January 624, an important thing happened. Now, one of the major uh, events in, in old Arabia was the Razia. The Razia, where it's where you're up behind a dune with a lot of uh, men and you see a camel caravan coming, uh, and you decide that they're fair game, and you swoop down on them like Indians, you see, uh, and you kill the people in the caravan, and you loot the goods. Uh, Razia is a raid. In January 624, Muhammad's followers successfully conducted a Razia on a caravan under the protection of the Meccans. Now, Muhammad had been teaching that these razias are bad, but if somebody initiates aggression against you, a razia is all right. Uh, the Meccans suddenly became aware that Muhammad was a threat to them. At the same time, uh, Muhammad alienated because the Jewish clans continued to reject him as a prophet. He veered away from his previous pro-Jewish policies and he ordered his followers not to face Jerusalem anymore but to face Mecca when they, when they prayed. In the same year, he defeated in battle a much larger force of Meccans during another razia. Some people in Medina had satirized him in verse and they were soon assassinated. He made a minor disturbance an excuse for expelling the Jewish clan that ran the market. The remaining Arab waverers then became his followers. In 627, a great army of 10,000 men from many Arab tribes marched against Medina to stop this new, growingly strong guy. Muhammad exhibited brilliant military, economic, and political strategy. He saw to it that the crops were all harvested uh, before the besieging army arrived. He had a large trench dug around the city, and he sent agents to sow dissension among the attacking tribes. After a night of wind and rain, the enemy melted away. Muhammad then turned to his chief enemy in Mecca, 
and he became in in Medina, and he became reconciled with him. This was a man who had seriously slandered him. Then they said, "Come on, let's go and attack the Jews." who had been intriguing to overthrow him. Uh, he executed uh, all the men and uh, sold the women and children into slavery. This was the beginning of a new policy for Muhammad. This is how he began to build Islam, to divert the feuding of the Arabs outward. Make peace with your friends and go, make peace with your uh, lesser enemies and go against your greater enemies. He saw the tremendous energy the Arabs spent on bloody feuds, killing somebody whose great-grandfather had insulted your great-grandfather. This, was some, this is something special to the Arabs, something they, they don't share with the Jews. If only the, this energy could be united in one force and directed outward, it could be used for conquest. How to unite them? By offering them his religion as a platform of unity and by making every kind of diplomatic concession, including offers of economic advantage to the tribe. In a dream, he saw himself performing the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. And in March, he set out with only a few men driving sacrificial animals before them. Now, this was a, more of a demonstration on his part. It was similar to some of the demonstrations that we see today. The Meccans stopped him in front of Mecca, said, you can't come in. Uh, and uh, Muhammad said, okay, if we can come back next year. And they, you know, they uh, uh, murmured and mumbled and so forth, and they finally agreed to let him come back next year and make a big pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, provided he wouldn't attack them. Uh, in this piece of brilliant strategy, Muhammad had stooped to conquer he saved face for the Meccans at the same time, but he still had to deal with the feelings of his followers. So he said, let's attack some Jews. Uh, uh, they attacked the Jewish oasis of Kaibar north of Medina. The Jews surrendered, but by this time Muhammad was in full control of himself, and he made terms with the defeated Jews. Uh, allowing them to remain exactly as they had been in uncontested possession of their oasis, provided they sold half of their date harvest in Medina. Okay, agreed. Muhammad then married the daughters of two Meccan opponents, so he had two fathers-in-law working for him in Mecca. Uh, and the point is he's going to march on, on Mecca now. Uh, so finally he... He came to besiege Mecca with 10,000 men, and his fathers-in-law came out to meet him. Uh, and uh, they submitted with their followers. Muhammad then promised a general amnesty. Uh, he entered Mecca without resistance. Uh, he pardoned uh, uh, most of his enemies, uh, and he gained the allegiance of most Meccans. He did not insist that the Meccans become Muslims, but many soon did. He did insist, however, that Islam become the public religion of Mecca. The Kaaba was cleansed of idols. To relieve the poorest of his followers, some of the wealthiest Meccans were forced to grant them loans. Uh, 
Muhammad was now the strongest man in Arabia, and delegates from tribe after tribe came in to swear allegiance to him. Generally, in dealing with the nomadic tribes, he began to insist on conversion to Islam. Arab states in Yemen and the Persian Gulf uh, soon thereafter turned to Muhammad because their former protector, the Persian Empire, had been defeated badly by the Romans recently. By 630, Muhammad's power extended all the way up to the Syrian border. Muhammad personally led the now purified pilgrimage to Mecca in March 632. At the beginning of June, he fell ill in Medina and he died within a few days. Now I want to go to the teaching of Muhammad. I uh, want to put it under three headings. First, a return to tribal values. Secondly, a set of rewards and punishments sanctioning the return to tribal values. Thirdly, a religious and social setting wielding into one community all those who obeyed Muhammad's call. First, the return to tribal values. In Mecca, there had been a change from a pastoral nomadic economy to a mercantile one. The Meccans had retained some of their tribal customs, such as clan solidarity and the blood feud. But these were in conflict with the business ethic. I mean, if you find your business partner's great-grandfather has insulted your great-grandfather, you don't walk into his office and shoot him dead. Um, one does not do this. Uh, the, the new business ethic, however, also meant a businessman was no longer in the position to protect the weaker members of his clan. For his wealth was no longer derived from tribal raids and looting, but from his own shrewdness in business. This was the great Semitic conflict, and it was seen wherever desert nomadic tribes settled down to do business. Blood brotherhood, feuding, protection of the weak, had to go by the board. So did the old concept of tribal honor. According to this concept, the meaning of life, the sense of being a worthy person, is bound up in how one appears to one's tribe. How does one appear worthy? By recognizing that one is one's brother's keeper, by helping him when he's in trouble, by defending his honor. Brotherhood is all important to the a tribal ethic. This is how the nomadic desert tribe survived. And one survived or failed to survive with one's tribe. For once the tribal connection was broken, one was alone wandering in the desert with no helper, no protector. One had the mark of Cain on one, so to speak, the tribeless man, the man in modern terms, the man without a country. Now, the merchants in the towns had found a different way to survive. It was by individualistic free enterprise uh, and rational planning. They found that one could survive and live well through the accumulation of wealth. This became the great goal in life. Those who were successful were full of pride and self-confidence. However, many of them were filled with guilt because they remembered those old tribal values from out on the desert. Inwardly, they'd not rid themselves of those values. Others were filled with guilt because they'd failed to make it in the wealthy establishment. 
and uh, this played on their guilt. They began to wonder if they should have ever lived in city life. So there was social conflict in Mecca. In the midst of this conflict, Muhammad appears preaching a return to tribal values, but putting it as a return to general communal values. Instead of the values of our tribe, it's going to be the values of the whole community of Islam. For what he wished to see was no return to primitive tribes, but the establishment of a great universal tribe, similar to St. Paul. Muhammad's message begins with the declaration that man is puffed up with a pride that is not justified. Man, he preaches, is fundamentally a metaphysical dependent, a dependent. Here he harks back to the experience of the nomad. True, the survival of the nomad does depend on his reason and the sharpness of his mind, but there's another factor, and this factor is what the old nomads, the old pagan nomads, had called time, time. Suppose that one starts out on a camel journey one Saturday morning. One rounds a dune at 10 o'clock, or at 11 o'clock rather than 11.10 when we should have rounded the dune. Uh, 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 and suddenly he meets the brother-in-law of a man uh, he, he had insulted nine years ago. There's a fight and one of them is killed. Well, that's the way time is. You know, you can't get completely completely adjusted on your schedules. One lives 20 years instead of the 70 one would have otherwise lived. Everything has a fixed time. So there came to the nomad a belief that time was some kind of fate that accounted for all the chance factors. And within a certain context, this belief had a certain survival level. For a great many things were really out of the control of the nomad, really out of his control sandstorms, the sudden discovery of a cave for shelter or of a hidden spring or of a cave wherein someone had deposited some wealth and some diamonds or something. Remember the Arabian Nights and Aladdin going into the cave? All those. Now, suppose a given nomad, let's say his name is Omar. Suppose he's a worrier, an obsessive worrier. Uh, uh, <laughs> He's always rushing around the backside of dunes to see if an enemy of his is there. <laughs> or he's always poring over genealogical tables to see whom his grandfather's brother-in-law has cursed. <laughs> such, such a man would never have the time or the energy uh, to control what is controllable. The belief in fate, therefore, is a kind of metaphysical psychological defense mechanism that permits one to survive under certain conditions. Within the limits of the nomad's very limited world, and in the absence of a rational alternative, it aids him in moment-to-moment -moment survival. The Arab, therefore, scorns the man who is always obsessively trying to control everything. His hero is not Omar, who lives his life worrying, but Aladdin, Aladdin, who suddenly stumbles on a cave full of diamonds, a pile of diamonds with a beautiful girl sitting on top of the pile. Uh, it is the decree of fate. 
or they began to say in Islam, it is the will of Allah. Do the diamonds turn out to be fake and the girl faithless? It is the decree of fate, the great allotter. As a poet said, go your way without getting angry until it becomes clear what the allotter allotted to you. Uh, in other words, don't look backward and think of all the possible different things that could have happened to you. Excuse me. <laughs> now, what Muhammad did was to take this belief in time or fate and turn it into the eternal decree of Allah. He has, Allah is good. He has the whole world in his hand. Uh, uh, man is a dependent on the inscrutable decrees of a God who is by definition good, but whose goodness one is not allowed to question. As the Quran says, have you considered the seed you spill? Do you yourself create it or are we the creator? Have you considered the water you drink? Did you send it down from the clouds or did we send it? Have you considered the fire you kindle? Uh, did you make the timber grow or did we make it? Now, since man is dependent on God, it is the height of presumption for him to think that he can control his, his destiny. This denial uh, of dependence on his part is the sin of pride. Now, God is the author of those old tribal values of brotherhood, help for the poor. These values arise from metaphysical dependence. Those who pursue wealth and oppress the poor deny these values of dependence. So they commit the sin of pride, then the sin of greed. But they go further and they deny their dependence. And this is the sin of pride, which is the greatest sin. God has prepared for them the punishment of hell. For those who observe the old values, on the other hand, he has prepared paradise. These are the sanctions. They're very important in uh, Islam. Uh, let us now look at the uh, religious and social system welding these into one community. The religion is called Islam, which means surrender. An adherent of Islam is called a Muslim, uh, which means one who surrenders. What you surrender to is the will of Allah, who is the one God. This one God is the creator, the sustainer, and the restorer of the universe. He revealed himself to a whole line of prophets, from Noah through Moses to Jesus. Muhammad is his last prophet. The revelation to Muhammad consummates all previous revelations and cancels them. The basic belief is expressed in the, uh, the formula of faith, which you should learn in case Islam is true and the angel wakes you up on the last day. La ilaha illa Muhammadan Rasulah. There is but one God. Muhammad is the prophet of God. From this essential belief are derived belief in angels, commandments, the series of prophets, the Quran, the final statement of God's revelation, the resurrection, the last judgment, heaven and hell, and the five pillars of Islam. The five pillars are, of Islam are, first of all, to say from one's heart what I just said. Sincerely, the profession of faith, 
Second pillar, the five daily prayers, including congregational prayer on Friday. Three, the welfare tax. Four, fasting. And five, the pilgrimage to Mecca. First, the profession of faith. Second, five daily prayers. Third, the welfare tax. Four, fasting. And five, the pilgrimage to Mecca. I'm going to skip over. Uh, I'll come back in the question period if necessary. I'm going to skip over the, the question of the sources of the Quran and go on to the doctrine of God uh, or in created being. There is one God, a necessary being, one person only, omniscient, omnipotent, all good, pure consciousness. He has no partners. There are no intermediaries between him and the created universe. The created universe is contingent, created out of nothing, by God's simple command, be, be. He's utterly transcendent. He does not inhere in anything, but he's around. He's closer to you than the vein of your neck. Uh, Muhammad says, uh, uh, he's ready to go with that knife in case you step out of line. <laughs> While all just, he's at the same time compassionate and merciful. He's ready to forgive at his whim. Uh, everything happens by his command. He decrees each individual unique event. Now, in a certain way, this late, this, uh, by its influence on certain medieval philosophers, paved the way for Hume, because each event can be conceived as existing by itself, apart from all other events, and each event is separately decreed by God. B, 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 you see? And what happens to scientific law then? Uh, he might have called into existence any number of an infinite number of universes. He might have commanded the separate events to fit together in an infinite number of other possible ways. So you never know. Um, only angels and men are capable of departing from the order decreed by Allah. Dogs will always act like dogs. You'll never, Allah never wills that a dog suddenly climb a tree or anything like that. He puts them in their proper order, to be sure. But uh, uh, angels and men can depart from that order. The devil rebelled because of pride, and he persuaded Adam, the first man, to join him. Adam, however, repented and was forgiven. His sin was not inherited. But man remains frail and susceptible to sin. Every other creature accepts its limitations and its uh, dependency. Man alone regards himself as self-sufficient. He's full of pride. He becomes guilty of ascribing to himself partnership with God. That's called shirk, to say that God has a partner in power me or anyone else. Associating a creature with its creator. What is needed 
uh, is faith in the uniqueness of the transcendent being and total submission to him, total absolute prostration with your posterior in the air. Uh, uh, a modern Islamic theologian, uh, a Swiss, by the way, puts it this way, a Swiss convert, quote, Islam is the meeting between God as such and man as such, and they're totally different in nature. Now, conversion from pride to submission may be made at any moment. God will be compassionate and merciful. He will forgive. Now, there have been a whole set of prophets, and these prophets begin with uh, uh, Adam, as a matter of fact, go on to Noah, uh, through Abraham, through the Hebrew prophets, through Jesus, through Muhammad, who is the final prophet. Now let's look at eschatology. Does anyone know what eschatology is? E-S-C-H. Not quite the purpose. It is, yes. The end, yes, the end. Um, the, the final things, the things that are to come. Uh, Islam uh, has a, gives you a, a vivid picture of the end of things. Islam is a non-dualistic religion. It believes in that the, the mind and the body can exist only together. Uh, Body and soul are fundamentally one. Thus, if there is to be any afterlife, it's got to be resurrection of the body. Unless you believe in reincarnation. Which uh, uh, the Samoites did not. They did not have that belief. I'm quoting from the Quran now. Quote, the earth and the mountain crumble away and scatter abroad into fine dust. So watch out if you live in California. Uh, uh, the dead shall rise and appear before the throne of God who will accept no excuses. I sent you the prophets, didn't I? But divide them into two people, two groups of people. Those on the left and those on the right. Those on the left, this is the only good part of the message we have. Those on the left will be will go to hell. Uh, this quote: "They shall dwell in pitch black smoke amid scorching winds, eating bitter fruit and drinking boiling water." Unquote. But as for those on the right, those on the right, I quote from chapter or Surah fifty-six. Uh, which is entitled, That Which Is Coming, That Which Is Coming. Happy shall be those on the right. They shall recline on jeweled couches raised on high in the shade of thornless bushes and clusters of bananas. <laughs> Amidst gushing waters and abundant fruits, Forbidden nothing, everlastingly alive. They shall recline face to face, and there shall wait on them immortal youths with bowls and cups of purest wine. Wine, which is forbidden by Islam. Cups of purest wine, 
that will neither dull the minds nor give them headaches. <laughs> With fruits of their own choice and flesh of fowls that they relish. And theirs shall be the dark-eyed Huris. Anyone know who the Huris are? Kind of what? Yeah, yeah, the girls waiting on them. Uh, now, here's the way he, it's phrased, chaste, C-H-A-S-T-E, as hidden pearls, a reward for their deeds. Well, you know, if you have a chaste woman as a reward for uh, your deeds, uh, uh, she, presumably, she remains not a virgin again, but uh, he says, uh, in, uh, we created the Huris and made them virgins, loving companions for those on the right. Now, the real meaning, apparently, here is that these Huris, to satisfy the impulses of the, uh, the Arab, are perpetually re-virginated. Uh, 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 that seems to be the implication involved. And so you have in addition, in addition to this, the, the vision of Allah, the beatific vision. You can see his face. So it's not, uh, it's not all uh, uh, finite uh, bodily pleasure, but you can see there's a lot of it for the good Muslim. Well, in spite of his doctrine of the left and the right, he has a doctrine of social service. Uh, expending one's wealth for the sake of others. This is an integral part of Islamic teaching. Uh, it is Satan who whispers into men's ears that by spending for others, he will become poor. God, on the contrary, promises prosperity in exchange for ex such expenditure, which constitutes a credit with God. Usury is forbidden. Give to the poor and you'll get rich. This seems to be the doctrine. Some contemporary economists seem to agree with this. Now we get to number 18, the conflict with Hellenism. The forces of Islam quickly conquered the southern and eastern Mediterranean basin. There they encountered the Hellenistic culture, which was already absorbed into Christianity. Translations of Aristotle were made by Christians of the Eastern churches, and they soon became available in Arabic. Other writings in Greek philosophy also became available. The Greek point of view was at first admired. They didn't know what they were getting into. And it was advocated up to a point by the party called the Mutazilites, that's the pro-reason party in Islam, the Mutazilites. Greek philosophy, however, uh, especially Aristotle, contradicted the whole Islamic point of view. The points of conflict were the following. The Greek point of view was based on reason, the Islamic on faith and revelation. Greek philosophy regarded all of reality as knowable. This was true even of divine beings like the prime mover, knowable by reason. Whereas Islam believed that God was transcendent and unknowable. That's the second conflict. First is reason versus faith. Secondly, it's the knowability of divine beings. 
Third, the Greeks believed the universe was fundamentally orderly and subject to regular law. But the Muslims believed that each event was separately decided by God's arbitrary predestination. Fourth, the Greeks believed in an ethics and politics based on reason. For the Muslim, ethics and politics was based on the Quran and sacred tradition. Now, those who subscribe to any Greek philosophy, especially that of Aristotle, uh, were soon in deep trouble. This is especially evidenced by the fate of the largely pro-Greek party, the Mutazilites. The sect of the Mutazilites represented a strong pro-reason reaction against the traditional doctrine of Islam. The traditional doctrine about the Quran was that it was part of the mind of God and therefore co-eternal with God. The real meaning of this doctrine is that it's a blasphemy to raise the slightest question about the Quran. The Mutazilites rejected this doctrine and they said that this is making the Quran into a second God to make it unquestionable. Unquestionable. The Quran, they said, is a creature just like a beast of the field. Therefore, it does not necessarily express the essential nature of God any more than the cockroach does. They didn't put it that way, but... The Quran must be subject to the interpretation of reason. If we find that a given thing is irrational and seems to be taught in the Quran, we conclude that God didn't really mean it this way. He sort of stuttered when he talked, he said. Uh, if anything in the Quran seems contrary to reason, we must then reinterpret it in accord with reason. This had an influence on the Christian Middle Ages. In this way, we do not erect a second God, and at the same time, reason is saved. This is called the doctrine of the unity of God. It's really the doctrine of the priority of reason. Secondly, we apply this immediately to sections of the Quran seeming to teach predestination. Now, predestination takes away moral responsibility, and man, the Mutazilite said, is morally responsible. A good God would not reward or punish eternally unless uh, man were morally responsible. This is called, this they called the doctrine of the justice of God and presented themselves as defenders of the justice of God. But of course, it was really the assertion of man's free will. These two pro-reason doctrines were accompanied by a strong emphasis on moral virtue and uprightness. The Mutazilite position began to make some headway when unfortunately their own zeal proceeded to fanaticism as so often happens with people in this area. Their zeal proceeds to fanaticism uh, and they shot themselves in the foot. Uh, they did their own cause in. They got into power and they issued a requirement that all public officials swear that the Quran is created and not divine. Some who refused were put to death. This is sometimes called the Muslim Inquisition from 830 to 845. And it's ironic that the only real inquisition in Islam was initiated by the pro-reason faction. Of course, there was a religious reaction and the Mutazilites were thrown out of power. 
Now, I want to take a look at another sect called the Karajites. This will help us to understand the fanaticism involved in Islam and some of the things that are happening today. These people are also called the Seceders. They broke away from the rest of Islam in the 7th century. Their secession was on a fundamental point. Granted that the principles of Islamic morality are correct, how shall they be applied in practice? Now, the principles of Islamic morality are not necessarily correct, as you know, and therefore it follows that to apply them is going to be difficult. How shall they be applied in practice? All Muslims agree that one should do good and refrain from evil. But they added, this condition, this must be understood under the condition that one takes circumstances into account. See? Take circumstances into account when you're applying principles. The Karajites, who were mostly nomads, rejected this condition. They insisted on good conduct as defined by the Quran, avoidance of sin as an absolute duty to be performed in and out of season, even at the cost of life itself. Anyone who failed to do this was, a true, was not a true Muslim and should be excluded from the community. The gate of paradise, they said, is open only to those who believe and live an upright life. They are the only true Muslims. They are the people of paradise. All others are the people of hell. This is a parallel, you see, to Augustine's City of God and City of Man, except not an exact parallel because Augustine thought they were intermixed uh, in the church. A person who has broken any commandment of the Quran has forfeited his membership in Islam. He belongs to the people of hell. Next, exclude him. Next, does any leader hesitate to exclude him? Assassinate the leader. Uh, he is no guardian of the purity of Islam. So much for what may be called moderate carriages. Now, naturally, a doctrine like this resulted in more and more splintering and more and more killing. The carriageites began to break down into small bodies of men varying from 30 to 100, each body claiming to be the pure people of paradise. They camped near cities or trade routes. The doctrine became, the only true Muslims are the people camped here. Well, a caravan goes by, and you see, you have returned to the old pre-Muslim uh, ethic of, of raids on all caravans. Everyone is fair game. Let's kill them and rob them. Now, the fundamental roots of this fanaticism can be found in the phenomenon of the breakup of tribes. In a primitive tribe, you have absolute certainty. You don't need principles, as a matter of fact. You just you get to know Ali and Omar and so forth, and you watch their body language, and you know how they don't want the flap of their tent disturbed and so forth. Are you peering through the... You, you understand that. You don't need uh, precise theological principles involved. Now, when these people were taken out of their tribal life and thrown into the vast body of Islam, and they were given these principles, general principles, they began to get scared because they were unsure of the proper interpretation of the principles. Uh, and so they began to try to apply the principles in the most literal and wooden way possible, and the return 
what the result was the return to this primitive sporadic aggression. Um, now, after the Karajite revolt, uh, the Muslim position on virtue became formulated. Uh, the orthodox doctrine became the following. All Muslims will go to paradise. That's what they believe today. All Muslims will go to paradise. Nevertheless, there are some big sinners among Muslims. They will be punished for a time in the next world, perhaps very severely, but all will go to paradise. So they made this very smart uh, compromise. Now I want to deal with the Shiites. A surviving major sect in Islam are the Shiites, about whom you are hearing more and more today. The Shiites reject the whole idea that disputed questions are to be decided by the consensus or majority of Islam. They believe in a kind of pope, a member of Muhammad's family, descendants of his son-in-law, Ali. Ali's own son, Hussein, was treacherously killed in 680. And from then on, the Shiites uh, have venerated him. And on the anniversary of his death, thousands of men march in procession, whipping themselves, cutting themselves with razor blades, and so on. It's like the penitentes of New Mexico reenacting the death of Christ. The supreme head of Islam, according to the Shiites, is the imam. Uh, or rather, he should be, because the last supreme imam disappeared in the 12th century. Uh, he is really alive, though, the 12th imam, and he is hiding somewhere, not in Argentina, but in uh, one of the caves in, in Mesopotamia. He's called the hidden imam. His present-day representative is well known to us. Uh, the imam himself is not only infallible, but he's without sin. He's impeccable. Not even the pope claims that. There are also schools of thought that believe this imam is a kind of emanation from God. They've introduced some Neoplatonism into the matter. The Shiites are today among the most fanatical Muslims. I pass to the next sect now, the Assassins. One medieval sect was that of the Assassins. This sect was led by a mountain chief called the Old Man of the Mountain. The Old Man of the Mountain. The Old Man of the Mountain surrounded himself with an army of fanatical youths. Their training included the following as a finale of their Paris Island uh, experience. They all got completely stoned on hashish, you see, from which you get the word assassin. Uh, they were then led to a hidden cave where they enjoyed all sorts of delights, the wine and the girls and everything, for a month. Then they were put to sleep and taken back to the barracks. Well, what do you suppose they were told back in the barracks? They've been in paradise, and how do we get back there would be the answer of the youths. And go out and fight 
in a holy war against the enemies of Allah and you'll wake up again in paradise where you were. Now this made for enthusiastic soldiers and still <laughs> makes for it today. They were indomitable fighters. Now I'm going to uh, make some conclusions about Islam and uh, during the question period we can go back uh, and uh, uh, look at the further and later developments. It's a religion born out of tension between nomadic life and urban life. Muhammad saw the Mecca, Meccan life as corrupt. He retired to the desert to gain inspiration. Finally, the inspiration came. The message was not a simple call to return to the traditions of tribal life, but the call to create a new tribe based on a set of principles, not tribal customs, principles. These principles called for the protection of orphans, the poor, and the weak. A threat that if people did not do this, they would go to hell, but if they did this, they would go to paradise. A theology to back this up, absolute monotheism derived from the Jews and the Christians. The doctrine of the last judgment also derived from the Jews and the Christians. Telling people to submit absolutely to this message and if they did so, to offer them entrance into a new super tribe, Islam, which allowed men of all races, without distinction, to come in. Turning intertribal warfare and caravan raiding outward against those who attacked Islam. Integrating all the above into an unbelievably simple and articulate code. Is everybody getting this or following it? Am I going too fast? Then finally, falling upon the two decadent and corrupt civilizations to the north, the Persians and the Romans, both of whom were involved in interminable theological disputes and they were always fighting with each other, conquering them in whole or in part. These moves were carried out by Muhammad and his successors with unbelievable skill and diplomacy. And they resulted in the creation of a new civilization, the Islamic. But the fierce spirit of the tribal caravan raiders was never fully subjected to the needs of civilized living. The result was the continual outbreaks of waves of fanaticism by people who were uncertain of the proper interpretation of Islam or uncertain of what to do next. Fratricide, which has continued to this day. The Arabs can't get together uh, on anything. It was Muhammad's desire to bring them together, and to a certain extent he did, but then they began to quarrel over the theology, over the principles. The Muslims never fully overcame their archaic idea that the primary means of production is caravan raids. Uh, and even after they got into an oil economy, uh, uh, they have uh, the same mentality has survived. Now I'm going to 
uh, discuss now some general conclusions about the role and function of religion in human history, which was the title of this series of lectures. First, I wish to call your attention to a point in my definition of religion, that religion rests on the assumption that certain human needs can be satisfied by resort to the supernatural. Now, of course, that implies that some of the needs may not be real at all, the presumption that certain needs may be satisfied. Some of the needs we may want to satisfy may be mere subjective needs, pseudo-needs, such as the need that everyone should love me. That is a subjective need, not a real need. Now, as man passes from primitive to highly civilized society, his objective and true needs are more and more taken care of by technology and medicine, see, more and more. But this control is far from perfect. And so certain objective needs remain, like the need to predict the path of tornadoes, for instance. And we were unable as yet to do that. So there are some objective needs not yet taken care of. And that's where the preachers are, you see, out there praying, giving thanks that we have not been, that we have not been destroyed in this tornado, even though most of our relatives have and so on, and saying it's the inscrutable will of God. So it partly claims to take, to be in control uh, or at least to submit these events to the will of God, certain objective needs. Re religion today still claims to be able to satisfy certain objective needs, like uh, security from tornadoes. But then there are certain subjective needs, certain illusory needs, like the need to be loved by everybody. In an advanced technological society, religion continues to appeal to such needs. What a friend I have in Jesus, uh, you know. Uh, somebody up there loves me. Um, so there are then these two classes of needs which remain to be satisfied by religion, real objective needs not yet taken care of by man's control over his environment, and all these illusory Subjective needs. Religion we will always have with us as long as it is assumed that any need, real or illusory, can be met by appeal to the supernatural. This is the main reason for the survival of religion in modern civilization. And this was the question that we addressed ourselves to at the beginning of the first lecture. The reason for the survival, for the continuing strength of religion. But one may object. Why the continuing primitive content? 
why the emphasis on dietary laws, on original sin, on being washed in the blood of the land, on eating the body and blood, and so on. Why are the religions with large amounts of primitive content so much stronger than sanitized religions like Unitarianism and Reformed Judaism? Liberal religions, people who believe in the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Boston. Uh, 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 or practicing but barely believing Catholics who believe that there is no God and that Mary is his mother. Uh, 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 why, 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 why aren't these, uh, why isn't this, doesn't this form of religion become stronger? As the Pope liberalizes the Catholic Church, fewer people go to Mass on Sunday. Well, why then do the primitive elements continue to appeal more? First, because they claim more mana. No Unitarian minister can claim that his vestry is full of mana, or he'd be laughed out of the pulpit, you say. Uh, they promise more. They threaten more. You never heard a reform rabbi warning you you may end up in hell. Uh, no. Secondly, they appeal to unresolved emotional conflicts left over from childhood. They promise a true father, a truly loving father, not the guy who brought you up, a true mother. Not one that's telling you to go and clean your room or else. <laughs> a warm and caring brotherhood. Total forgiveness. And as I quoted the hymn, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Or, as a nun might sing, What a Lover I Have in Jesus. See, these things cannot be offered by the diluted forms of religion. Thirdly, these traditional religions tie us to our ethnic and ancestral identities. They bring with them the approval and support of our real families, our uncles and our cousins and our aunts, as uh, Gilbert and Sullivan says. Uh, ultimately, these ties lead back to a distant past with which we may feel proud to be identified. And the ties lead forward to a continuation of the tradition in the future. Not to pass on the tradition is to be some kind of traitor. It's like not passing, not continuing a chain letter, you say. Giving into these concepts, these emotions, preserves in existence the ancient religious institutions and their power in individual and social life to campaign for legislation for against abortion, for prayer in the schools, and so forth and so on. 
this is the role of religion in history. Uh, to understand it is to expand our rational control over our lives. Thank you very much. Open to questions now. Yes. What's the appeal that American blacks have with Islam? Uh, what is the appeal? What is the appeal that seemingly appeal that American blacks have with Islam? Well, I I can't give a complete answer to that, but you see, uh, Christianity is presents itself uh, in the traditional black denominations, uh, Baptist, uh, Methodist, AME, AME, Zion, and so forth and so on. It's a soft religion, a kind of an Uncle Tom religion, let's put it that way. See, Islam is totally condemns religious discrimination, I mean racial discrimination, in theory and mostly in practice. So they say, come on in where we're all equal, where there's no racial discrimination, and be a man such as your mother did not encourage you to be. You see, she wanted you to go and be a friend of Jesus to turn the other cheek and so on. Now, that's, that's part of the story. Yes? Uh, and following up on that question, what's the difference between Muslims and Muslims? Oh, no difference. Muslim is the correct way to say it in... Muslim is just a Western uh, corruption. Any more questions? Oh, yes. Was it Aristotle's influence that resulted in the accomplishment of the Arab, especially in math and medicine? I believe in part it was the attitude which they learned from the from the uh, 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 from Aristotle, uh, you must remember that the peoples of the whole Mediterranean basin had had this great Hellenistic civilization. Uh, to some degree, the theological infighting in Christianity and, and the, the anti-Greek attitude of much of early Christianity had held this progress back. When the Muslims came in, at first they liberated all these people that had been subject uh, to the uh, Christian church, uh, and they uh, rediscovered the Greeks, and everything seemed all right for a while under the protection of Islam. Now, that's part of the story. They also got, as you know, the numerals from India and, and so on. They absorbed many of the characteristics, the progressive characteristics of other civilizations, and they were relatively tolerant. They did not persecute Jews and Christians. They did not persecute them. Uh, you could find Christian churches all over the Islamic civilization. You couldn't find any mosque in France or Italy 
uh, you would you'd get killed, but it's Islam which was relatively more tolerant. But they forced the Jews and the Christians to live in certain quarters of the town and they let them live under their own law uh, with their rabbis or priests interpreting the law. Yes? Discussion with somebody who is a uh, Muslim, and they said that uh, their altruism was limited to seven houses in either direction. Seven what? Seven houses, or seven families in either direction, all around them. How could the extent of their altruism, their care for their brothers? I didn't know anything about that. That comes as a complete surprise to me, and I very. I think he probably belonged to a splinter sect of. <laughs> Our camp over here. I don't know. This is quite new to me. Yes. Uh, the metabolites that uh, appeal to uh, reason in some respects, to, uh, to what extent do they appeal to reason? Well, they soon divided into a left and right wing. And the left-wing Mutazilites were the more radical pro-Greeks, and the others began to develop a kind of Muslim scholasticism. Uh, if you see what I mean, the, the uh, assumption of the absolute authority of the Quran, but with considerable amount of hair splitting. So it, I perhaps uh, spoke uh, with some degree of exaggeration when I said that as a party they were that pro-reason. They were not entirely any more than the Thomists were, but relatively they were. Yes. Oh, I had to leave out several sections. Is it, t is it the last day? Yes. Sorry. Sorry. Who just... The Baha'is are a movement which started in Shiite Islam. Uh, and later detached themselves from uh, Islam. They uh, believe uh, in a religion of universal brotherhood, support of the United Nations, uh, um, they're, a very, they're actually a very authoritarian sect, which is highly organized and highly centralized, uh, and they they believe in charity, they believe in brotherhood, they believe in universal literacy. You might say they are a kind of representative of old-fashioned Victorian uh, liberalism in turbans. Uh, 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 and uh, uh, their leader was called the Bab. He was uh, killed by the Shiites in Islam. Uh, in a famous execution in which the, the bullet that was supposed to, he was hung, and the bullet that was supposed to kill him passed through the rope, and he just dropped down and ran for his life. But uh, they got him uh, and, uh, and killed him, and he was succeeded by a man named Baha'u'llah, who was the real founder of the Baha'i religion. Now, I don't know... Do you want to know any further details? 
oh, they're being persecuted because they deviated from Shiite Islam and founded a really universal religion that was basically non-legalistic and basically Western. They're, they're wealthy, by the way. Again, we have the Jain phenomenon. They're wealthy because they're a minority and because they have their own ethos because they've been persecuted. And they are really catching hell from the Ayatollah more than anyone else. Dr. Peacock's talk last night and your talk today both focused somewhat on certainty and happiness. And it seems that there's a, some sort of success correlation between religion and, and their offering of certainty and happiness. Well, at least the illusion of certainty and the illusion of happiness. Uh, yes, that's true. The, the more they offer... Uh, in those two departments, the more they attract people. Uh, and if they manage to give the illusion to some extent by producing ecstatic states, mystical exaltation, speaking with tongues, the laying on of hands continually. Uh, uh, in, my, uh, in the city which I live, there is a sect of people who believe that uh, you get baptized with a certain kind of spiritual fire which gives you the Holy Ghost and that afterwards you have, to prove it, you have the Holy Ghost tan. Now, how they do this, I don't know, but maybe it's some psychosomatic phenomenon. Uh, but that sort of thing gives... It's not certainty, it's conviction, you see. It's, a, it's, it's the, the substitute for certainty, it's conviction. Yes. How do we get from um, <clears throat> the world that you're ending up describing with this primitive religion and these nomads and caravan raiders to uh, the world that, that fed, you know, that seemed to be a more advanced civilization than Europe and, and was a, had a lot of Aristotelianism in it? Well, that's part of the later history of Christianity and of Western society generally and of the Renaissance and of the Enlightenment and so on. All that I had set myself to explain was not Western civilization uh, in these four lectures, but the survival of religion in spite of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and the Renaissance. How come so many objectivists have spoken to me and written saying, do you know anything about this? How does it come about? Why isn't religion falling to pieces? And that's what I tried to answer, yes. Yes, the lady in red. <laughs> can, you, can you recommend a general survey history book on religion? Well, there's a man named Noss. Do you know a man named Noss whose uh, first name I cannot at the moment remember, but he's written a standard survey in comparative religion. Uh, you might look it up in books in print, uh, uh, I just can't remember the, the title. N-O-S-S, -S, NOS. That's probably the best uh, general survey in terms of an academic student survey. There are lots of other books uh, about uh, uh, primitive mythology and later mythology, the works of Joseph Campbell, Mercia, Iliad, and so on, which uh, you might be... I, I can tell you afterwards about Given the irrationality of 
Islam, especially the Islamic Republic, our buddy, the present Imam. Uh, is there any way to deal with these people outside of uh, outside of force, threat of force? I mean, they want to die. They want to be martyrs. Is there any way we can deal with them? Well, uh, always, there's a peculiar thing about, if you, you notice the whole career of, of Muhammad and the way he dealt with the tribes, they're always willing to make a quick deal. And I suppose that's why somebody told Reagan this, and he took it very literally. You know? <laughs> and he decided to send them a Gideon Bible. But uh, uh, that wasn't... I mean, it might have been done by very careful negotiation. I don't know, but they're, they're always breaking away from each other, you know, and, and being traitors to each other and stabbing each other in the back. Uh, and so... If you have to have a momentary, if you have to have momentary peace, this is the way to do it. And don't approach them with an absolutely hard and fast rule, because this is not going to work. This is simply not going to work. They have a very complex structure of principles and customs, which they interpret and reinterpret, and it's never quite what you think. You've got to watch the, the dunes, that's all. It's... Yes, John. Say something about the sources of Islam, the Quran, the Sunni, and the Zohar. Uh, yes, the Quran is the is the uh, uh, whole collection of revelations which were given by the angel Gabriel to Muhammad, and he wrote them in the surahs, or they were written down in by, by his uh, secretaries in the surahs, and the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A, something I didn't mention is the body of uh, customs and uh, legal decisions that have been made, uh, and they have to be agreed upon by the whole uh, ummah, or community, and uh, the consensus of the community is called the ijma. So everything goes by consensus among the Sunnite majority of Islam. The Shiites are, so to speak, the Catholics of Islam. They, have a, a, they don't believe in this consensus at all. They believe in absolute authoritarian rule. 